Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and you're going to want to take notes during this episode. Today, I'm chatting with the space as a service veteran and successful commercial real estate entrepreneur, John Arenas, who is the founder and CEO of the upscale hospitality-based workplace brand called Serendipity Labs. John believes that every office landlord is now part of the flex office industry, whether they like it or not, because that's what enterprise customers expect. So he has some advice for asset owners looking to bring space as a service into their portfolios. Landlords should think twice before signing a lease with an operator that only has exposure to the downside risk. He shares how landlords can balance their risk and stay in control of their building value by deploying a model that aligns investor interest with the operator brand. In this episode, you're going to learn how Serendipity Labs is helping landlords future-proof their portfolios through a manchise model. I know it doesn't sound PC, but I promise this is a gender-neutral term. We talk about credit aggregation, gaining access to channels that reach enterprise customers, why John is bullish on suburban markets, and how to support the work-from-anywhere trend. Be sure to write down your light bulb moments as you listen. I wrote down a few myself. Please share them with me on social media. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you won't cover, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or email podcast at workbold.co. Now, are you ready to kick off this episode? I am. Yo, VIP, let's kick it. Welcome back to the Word Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today we get to chat with the founder and CEO of Serendipity Labs, John Arenas. John has a proven track record of bringing groundbreaking innovations to the corporate real estate and hospitality industries. In the early 2000s, John founded Worktopia, an online reservation system for sourcing office and meeting space and other workspace on demand. In 2008, he secured venture capital finance to focus on the hotel meeting space vertical, where he established an online marketplace for travel distribution with partners such as American Express, Travelocity, and the global hotel chains. He went on to be named one of the 25 most influential executives in business travel before exiting through an acquisition by SignUp4, which is now part of Cvent. Before that, he founded Stratus, a chain of franchised flexible office centers that he developed across 11 U.S. states, primarily in suburban and secondary markets. Stratus was acquired by Regis in April of 2001, where John joined the leadership team as president of the Americas and reported directly to CEO Mark Dixon. And I think it's important to point out that John led the restructuring of approximately $1 billion in lease obligations, comprising over 3 million square feet with 42 landlords across the U.S., and that saved $350 million in cash for Regis, bringing the company back into profitability, resulting in an 11x share price increase. Now he's at it again, building one of the fastest growing corporate co-working brands, Serendipity Labs, across the U.S., and now the U.K. through his partnership with us over here at Newflex. But unlike his time with Regis, he's leading Serendipity Labs with a better economic model for landlords. Welcome to the Workbull Podcast, John. I'm so glad to be with you, Caleb. Oh, it's so so great that the chat. I remember the first time you and I spoke. It was back in 2012. You had just opened your first Serendipity Labs location in Rye, New York. Is that right, Rye? Rye, New York. Rye. And I just raised capital myself to develop and launch a mobile app to book meeting rooms and offices by the hour. We had this vision of becoming a global distribution system. And considering your Worktopia experience, I was hoping for some feedback and some advice. 
this industry has just become, it's becoming so incestuous, isn't it? It really is. I mean, I've often said that, you know, this industry is one where we're all like one big company after a while, uh, but it's a lot of great people all trying to pull in the same direction, um, no matter what happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you've been on quite a few podcasts and webinars lately. I've, I've seen you on a couple in a few of them myself. And, uh, but for some of our audience over here across the pond, can you sort of start off giving us a, a high level overview of maybe your current footprint in the U.S. and a little bit more about Serendipity Labs? Sure. Well, you know, Serendipity Labs was designed from the outset to be an extension of the corporate workplace and to build a hub and spoke network of locations that could serve companies in uh, with flexibility. Uh, so what that has led to is a set of locations that are in city centers uh, with a suburban ring of locations outside of the, those city center locations, and then also secondary markets. So there are cities, as you can imagine, like New York and LA and Atlanta as our city centers with a ring of suburban locations around them, but we're also in secondary markets like Pittsburgh and Nashville and Columbus, Ohio. Caleb, the way that we're growing our network is through an economic model that is often called manchise, which sounds like a funny word, but it's a combination of management agreement and licensing agreement or franchise agreement. Sometimes franchising gets confused with the retail franchise we all know about uh, through fast food and that sort of thing. But 97% of hotels are franchised too. And uh, there are a good number of them that are operated by the brand. So our expansion model and our growth model really relies upon um, uh, us being able to strike an agreement with a landlord in which they become the owner or franchisee or licensee, and we manage on their behalf. That's a model that aligns us uh, very well with their interests in providing a flexible offer to the tenants who are looking for, well, just that flexibility. And I think most landlords are realizing now that they're in the flexible office industry. Well, uh, that's very similar to um, what happens in hotels. I mean, there's in the hotel industry, you've got uh, the franchises, but then you also have these management companies that come in. And it sounds like what you've done is you've taken the the franchise and the management company model and brought them together. Is that right? That's right. I mean, really, when hotels, uh, the hotel industry started out, there were mostly company-owned hotels, and they grew to a franchising model to license the brands to other secondary market locations. Ultimately, uh, the hotel brand wanted to manage the most important locations, and so they managed and licensed. And that agreement today is still referred to as a franchise in the industry. That's the same model that we're deploying with the office industry is a managed license arrangement, which really aligns our interests with the landlord. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Um, but first, can you sort of dive a little deeper into why you focus on the suburbs and the secondary markets? Caleb, the reason we're focused on the secondary markets and suburbs is that we want to be where the corporate occupier is not. In other words, if we have locations in city centers where corporate occupiers are already situated, that really doesn't help them very much. It might provide them some flexibility, but it doesn't allow them to support mobility for their workforce or to support other distributed workforce uh, strategies. It also doesn't allow them to optimize their portfolio and reduce obligations, uh, which might have been traditional leases under 10,000 square feet in the suburbs. So by having secondary markets in suburbs, we create a, an entire footprint that the corporate occupier doesn't have themselves or would rather not have themselves most corporate occupiers today don't want to sign a lease for under 10,000 square feet. 
in a secondary market or something that's a non-headquarters facility. So, so we hear a lot about the hub and spoke model in real estate, uh, particularly right now. There's been a lot of conversation about that with people wanting to um, work closer to home. And is is that so? Are you seeing an interest or a spike because of that? Well, you know, I've been a, a little bit of an evangelist for the hub and spoke model since the late 1990s, and I'm feeling a bit vindicated that it's actually here. Uh, you know, we would rather that it hadn't taken a pandemic to get to this point. But I think what's re- what people are realizing is that working at home really isn't the answer. It was this um, myth that uh, people could have more quality of life that way. Also, I think the other myth that was broken uh, was that people couldn't work remotely and still maintain productivity and and connection uh, to the rest of their company. And with both of those myths busted, it really does put flexible office in the driver's seat for being able to support uh, work close to home but not at home. Uh, workplace choice, workplace consumerization um, for the for the end user, the member. So th- those are all things that were that are causing a spike in demand for us. Our suburban locations across the U.S. have experienced um, an upswing in demand and are currently at a demand level inquiries per week greater than before COVID. That's very telling, and um, I, I know that a lot of the city center flex operators can't say that. And you know, obviously, there's the deal with public transportation and fears about that. But do you think that's because people can drive to your locations, or have you do you have any other sort of anecdotal data yeah, to there, back that up? There, there are really a couple of things that are driving it. One is the end user, the individual who's making a choice to get uh, a better place to work that's away from their home, but uh, doesn't require a commute. And so they're exercising their decision to find a better place to work for the day or for, you know, for at least some, whenever they choose. Uh, The other piece is that companies are trying to provide good choices uh, in order to maintain uh, productivity. And with many companies not really uh, strongly inviting their employees back to city center locations, uh, this is a way to put corporate style or corporate compliant resources or corporate compliant workplace around individuals um, so they have a trusted place to work. So both those things are driving the the, the occupier, the decision maker in corporate real estate, is they're making decisions to provide an alternative to a commute and to a city center tower type of workplace. Um, And the individual themselves are trying to escape the home office or escape whatever it is that they're doing at the home uh, for an office uh, and, and get into a much more productive, longer-term situation. Yeah, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about that um, both this season and, and last season. Um, and, you know, I think there's this conversation around the binary go to work, get into the office, or work from home. And uh, I, th- I think, you know, we've I think we're getting to the point where we are agreeing that it's not binary anymore. There's, there's other options, and, you know, certainly – uh, we're discussing that right now. Um, but, you know, I, I personally have a nice home office now. And, um, you know, I, I am okay, like, working most of the time from my home office. That's okay. However, this past Friday, my internet died. Uh, Virgin Internet, Virgin Media was having issues for the first part of the morning. And it would have been so much easier if I could just pop over to um, a place to work from. So, um, but not everybody's as fortunate to to be able to have a home office. And it's great to have um, something nearby, but um, you. When we were talking 
last week, you and I on a call, uh, you were talking about this blurred line between flex and conventional um, in terms of contracts with, with the, the corporate occupiers are looking for. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think the important thing to realize, and I touched on it earlier, is that because tenants and corporate occupiers demand flexibility, um, because business cycles are short and because uh, there's always uncertainty about how much space or what the hiring plan is going to be or how well the product is going to launch or the um, or, or the business plan is executed, they're looking for flexibility that's causing landlords to have to be in the flexible office business. That doesn't mean that they're a co-working operator. What it means is that they're having to react with shorter term leases. And so where a traditional lease, uh, depending on what market you're in in the U.S., might have been a 10-year lease, started to track down towards seven and then six, that's creating a lot of flexibility and putting pressure on a traditional model of investing um, tenant improvements and other transaction costs to get a tenant in and having to make that money back during the lease term. So if you can imagine that lease term becoming shorter and shorter, uh, it starts to bump into what is the flexible office industry offering you know, one-year agreements or six-month agreements or daily or hourly agreements. So there's this whole continuum of from one hour to 10 years. Um, and I think what's happening is that the demand is skewing towards things less than five years. And so landlords have felt the pressure to offer at least part of their building in a format or in a productized um, delivery that satisfies those requirements for shorter term and flexibility. And importantly, kind of a pre-built environment that's managed with landlords feeling the pressure to satisfy tenant requirements for much shorter terms that really puts pressure on what they're offering is. The idea of having to put up not only transaction costs, brokerage fees, and other downtime is one thing, but to also have tenant improvement costs that are substantial uh, makes it really difficult to have shorter term leases. So having a offering within the building, even if it's only a portion of the building, that offers a pre-built, well-serviced, uh, flexible, arrangement is going to be uh, is going to continue to be important. Landlords want to participate in that. It's their building. Um, and there's some challenges if they sign in a traditional uh, call it flexible office lease arrangement. So they're really looking for that sense of control. They don't want the location to be encumbered. Um, and we can talk about a little bit more about why a landlord might want to do a managed franchise or a management agreement. But they're really reacting to the demand that is for more flexibility, which because that's happening because business cycles are uh, are short and and uncertainty is high. <laughs> okay, so let's talk management agreements, especially considering your customers are all blue chip, high credit companies. Why would a landlord want to do a management agreement versus just signing a lease directly with you? Well, Caleb, the reason landlords would want to do a management agreement has a few different facets, one of which is an operator can provide a higher credit quality aggregation than they could otherwise do themselves by leasing the space. That's a win uh, because buildings are basically valued on the cash flows and the credit quality of the cash flows from within the facility. So having an operator that can manage the location, uh, provide the upside, the economic participation, and uh, 
have channels that can reach prospective customers, prospective tenants that landlords can't, that's really a unique capability that most landlords don't have, particularly in suburbs and secondary markets. So I would say it's you know customer credit aggregation. It's also um, just the participation on the upside. And the reason upside is important is because in most cases, even when a landlord signs a lease with an operator, they're really taking on most of the downside. So if you're going to have the downside risk, you might as well have the upside protection. And the last reason, uh, which is also really important to the value of the asset, so when a landlord signs a lease with an operator, often for 10 years or more, they're encumbering that asset. They're limiting their ability to have options. One of those options might be a higher credit tenant. It may be that the proportion of space within that building needs to include more flex, but the operator has an exclusive and doesn't want to cooperate with that, doesn't want to let another third party operator in the building, uh, or they don't want to expand themselves. So all of those things can encumber and limit the value of the asset by having a direct lease with the operator. Uh, and by the way, if you're, as I said, if you're going to have the downside, you might as well have the upside. Yeah, it, it totally makes sense. It's, it gets the landlord more control. And I think historically, um, looking at management agreements, um, it was perceived as a big risk. But, I th- you know, we just did, the art, did an episode with, uh, with Evelyn Lee covering her deep insights into valuing flex assets. And, um, and, and now it's the leases are becoming the more risky piece. So it's, it's fascinating. But, yeah, really, um, so I, just if I may, you know, the management agreement, although sounding somewhat foreign to investor ears uh, for those people who invest in office real estate, it really is something to be considered something tantamount to a facility management or property management agreement combined with a leasing and marketing agreement, except for a very specific part of the building. Um, so there's a specific if if a landlord thinks about management agreement. And, and lease agreement, like a property management agreement and an agency listing, there's really not that much different other than the product is more intensive. There's more churn, there's more care, there's more uh, managing the customer experience. That's all true. But in terms of what the bet is for the landlord, really they're making that same bet using a third party to manage uh, the asset and they're making that bet with a third party to market and lease that asset. So really finding a specialist that has reach, uh, has the marketing capability, but also the day-to-day management capability and strength. Those are things that make you know, the credit aggregation and the um, ultimately the value of the entire asset uh, higher. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I think it's a fantastic analogy. Uh, I, I had I haven't used it before, but I will from from now on. And um, you know, I think that the key to that, to me, is if you have a contract with an FM supplier or you know, et cetera, um, you can fire them if they're not doing a good job. And in in this case, uh, I know we probably don't want to have that talk about that too much necessarily, but we can be fired, which makes sure that we pay a hundred percent attention to make sure that that space is um, is operating. Uh, we're incentivized to make sure it's operating at full capacity. That's right. I mean, this is a management agreement. Um, the management company or brand can be uh, terminated for performance, and that is a lot of control that the landlord has, and that's it should be very attractive. 
Well, thank you for that. Um, I, I'm just going to switch gears just a little bit. Um, you talked about right now your inquiry uh, levels back up to pre-COVID time. So how, but I want to talk about the last six months. How has business been affected over the last, um, you know, this whole coronavirus period? Well, certainly the coronavirus impact has been uh, very significant, really across all of our locations. Um, like most, we had to uh, close close them down with very limited access to only essential businesses and being an essential business ourselves, uh, limited operating with a very limited staff. Uh, that affected our um, recurring revenue and renewals. So that was it was just a very it has been a very challenging time. However, I think it's probably worth pointing out that it's really been a tale of two types of cities, if I may. Uh, city centers, uh, central business districts uh, have really suffered and continue to suffer uh, with uh, non-renewal uh, at the end of the membership term, um, while our, our suburban markets uh, have, have been remained fairly resilient. To give you an example by the numbers, you know, since uh, Feb from February to June, our suburban locations across the U.S. had a um, revenue decline of only 11%. That's, and we're billing, uh, rather collecting 97% of our billings. So, you know, 11% reduction overall means that some, yes, had some move outs, but some actually have increased their revenue uh, through the pandemic. And that's really somewhat remarkable difference from the city centers, which have really just been waiting for return, waiting for confidence, waiting for, um, in some cases, uh, companies to allow their employees to come back. And John, are you seeing that the the revenue increases are getting back to these closer to normal levels? Is that um, on uh, meeting rooms, co-working, and office space across the board? Are you seeing more in one direction or the other, or is it pretty much the same as it has been? Well, to be fair, I think our revenue isn't back to where it was. Our new sales are getting close to that number for the suburbs. Our inquiries are uh, back to where they were, but the deals are smaller. The inquiries are for smaller requirements. Now, as to the other products, which are important, if you're going to be an extension of the corporate workplace, you need to have meeting event space. You need to have drop-in workplace as offering as well. And what we're seeing uh, is for the very first um, – moves towards uh, small meetings and events. I will say more like small meetings than events, uh, but sometimes 10 or 20 people even, uh, so long as we're you know, socially distanced and, and uh, offering the right environment, that is just starting to come back. Uh, the co-working business, interestingly for suburbs, is actually coming back um, quite nicely. Uh, we are offering, as most are, uh, much more attractive pricing to uh, get new members and win new hearts and minds for those people who had not used co-working or shared workplace before and want a place to work close to home but not at home. Um, the story isn't quite the same in the city centers where you know, often we have larger requirements of larger occupiers within our space who are also kind of holding out and waiting to see what's next. So there's a bit more uncertainty. Renewal happens, but mostly as an option to stay where they are. And, um, you know, I think that that's an ongoing question mark about, you know, city center uh, performance and how long it will take to come back. And I would say that's the place where 
where there, you know, we and others have leases in place, we're really having to get more aligned with, uh, with our landlords. Um, and to date, most operators uh, that I'm aware of have been really just agreeing to deferral of rent. So, so to get a deferral of a partial um, amount of the rent and to pay that over time over the remaining lease term, that really keeps the landlord completely whole. And meanwhile, operators have taken on additional debt, emergency relief funding, uh, paid uh, through capital calls to try and keep their locations moving. There's only so much that the operator can sustain. It really is, in effect, a, a more of a retail walk-in workplace business. And um, you know, I think this next leg of of uh, restructuring of of co-working in city centers is going to really look a, a bit more at how the landlords participate. So movement toward revenue share leases, movement toward management and license agreements. I think that's just a natural place to go, um, being that landlords themselves don't have a lot of other options for large requirements, since, as we all know, large transactions aren't happening either right now. Very true. And I think you you bring up a good point about the shift from uh, straight lease to some sort of profit sharing, joint venture, or management agreement model. And, and I want to clarify something. Um, you know, we set out talking about how you are deploying this new model that's better for for landlords, and we talk about manchises. Um, but you you did just say that on some of your um, leased buildings or something like that. I want to clarify. Do you also have some buildings that are on leases? Yeah. So early in our development, we were looking to seed. Uh, major markets with a city center location and franchise and license the suburbs. Uh, that was the model. So we we created some and uh, some locations in some city centers where we participated with with capital ourselves and formed either a revenue share lease or a straight lease with the landlord. Uh, that was because that was the only way to get a deal done. Um, given the option. Um, going forward and the willingness and desire of landlords to participate in the economics and have the flexibility, we haven't had to do that in a number of years. Well, thank you for clarifying that. And I think that's you know, similar sentiments over here. Um, you know, my early days of talking to landlords, you, you mentioned management agreement and they threw out the office almost, <laughs> not really, but uh, well, rich people were way too nice I, for that. I can remember a time, um, well, a long period of time in which you know, we had to, if we were looking to put a shared workplace or flexible office uh, facility in an office building, uh, we really had to make a strong case with the landlord to even be able to sign a lease and to have yeah. and to get through the covenant and the and the security deposit and the whole story of the brand. This was this went on for 15 years. <laughs> Our only choice was to sign a lease, and even then we would get you know, the least desirable part of the building that the landlord hadn't been able to lease or had other marketable marketability issues. Um, those days are gone. Well, I think that's uh, that's a good thing for, for everyone um, in our sector, uh, in, in our big company, I should say, you know, <laughs> that we talked about the, the industry being yeah. a company. Um, but, but no, I think it's a, it becomes a win-win for the for the operator and the, and the landlord. And, and now, um, you know, as one of our previous podcast was talking about the valuation methodology being evolved and now the valuer community and the capital markets are starting to look at um, spaces of service and management agreements in a more positive manner. Um, I think 
I think we're going to see a snowball effect of, of management agreements. But um, so having said that, and you've got clearly lots of experience um, on, on the operator side, but also working with the asset owners, um, what is your advice to asset owners who are looking to bring in a space as a service component into their portfolio? Well, I think the first bit of advice is that you really will have to invest and anything worth doing is worth doing right. So I would say that uh, finding an operator that has the strength from an operational point of view, network and reach. And what I mean by network and reach are that there are other locations that add to the brand uh, that other so that the marketing power is, is stronger. And reach is that they have the right uh, third-party distribution channels and strategic partnerships with brokerages, as well as online presence and the strength of their uh, online web um, uh, lead generation. Those are all things that will allow that operator to do something that the landlord can't do themselves, which is reach a new mar- reach a market and um, and and build uh, success. So I say that's probably the the uh, the, the primary advice is to um, is to invest in in the brand, you know. Maybe secondarily, it, and because there are a lot of brands out there, is to find the brand that fits the building. Um, that yeah. w- and depending on what you're trying to accomplish, so you know, certain brands really do look. Uh, sorry, certain certain buildings rather do um, look for a, uh, an operator that meets the the uh, requirements of the existing tenant. So look to your existing tenants, who they are, and what they expect. That's what the building is attracting, and look for a brand that matches that profile. Maybe even have a conversation with your tenants and, and see what they what they like. Of course, that's right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. Yeah, that's solid advice. And well, that's true. I mean, I, I think the yep. if you look at a traditional hotel asset, uh, oftentimes it gets reflagged uh, to a different brand over the life cycle of that asset, and if the if that asset uh, can produce the draw, it's in a good location, it gets a better brand, and that brand actually adds value to the asset. So hotels trade on what flag they can fly. And to some extent, what flag, what co-working or shared workplace flag you can fly in your building tells you a bit about the quality of your building. Well, that is that is what I would expect. And I think brand, you know, I've banged on this drum a long time. Brand <laughs> in the commercial real estate has not been at the forefront, but I think because space as a service is growing in 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 the in the industry, I think brand is going to come to the forefront. And you're absolutely right. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I have one final question before we move into a little quickfire round, and that's um, John. What's what are you most optimistic about looking ahead into 2021? Wow. Yeah, most optimistic. I'd say that I'm most optimistic about this permanent shift to distributed work and breaking the myths that, you know, one can find a great way to work at home 100% of the time. I don't think that's the case. And uh, the myth that you can't be productive if you're not at the at the headquarters office. So I think those two things are cause for a lot of optimism. That and uh, it's driving the industry together in terms of how to provide flexible accommodation for the customer, which is the occupier and the individual, you're really working together and not seeing it as operator versus landlord or things that a landlord might have to do or an operator might have to do. We're really in the same business now, which is, I think, the good news. Yeah, well, I would say it's the the customer service business and um, you know commercial real estate. I'm gonna I'm gonna bang on this drum one more time. It hasn't been great about that e- either in the past. And um, okay, so 
Great. Uh, well, thank you for that, John. And, and if you agree or disagree with, with me or John on any of this, feel free to hit us up on social media, um, LinkedIn or Twitter. We like to engage um, on, on the networks as well. Um, so I'm going to move into my quick fire round, John. These are just quick, light, short answer um, questions. And the first one is, who inspires you in our industry? Well, that's actually kind of easy. I mean, um, there there have been plenty of cynical approaches uh, by a lot of the leadership of a lot of the larger companies in this industry that aren't as inspiring. But what inspires me, and it's really every day, is team members who are delivering the workplace as a service. Uh, they're showing up. They're bringing their heart. They're bringing their, you know, uh, their hard work and their commitment. And that's just, that's all the inspiration anybody should ever need. Oh man. I hope all your team listens to this. <laughs> everybody's team and, and everybody's team that's, that's delivering the service. It's not just us. Oh, that, I'm glad you said that because you know, the, the, the team, whether it's front of the house, back of the house, management, et cetera, you know, often in the industry, in the greatest scope of the industry, we don't get enough, um, we, we don't we don't give or get enough recognition, and I think uh, I'd like to see more of that. Uh, thank you for that. So, okay, next question is: What sort of podcast or media do you consume to stay up to date on the latest trends? Well, of course, you know Workbold. I, I have to <laughs> mention that, um, but and, and unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time to consume a lot of media. Uh, I'm, I'm I think a lot of what I consume in terms of information is. Uh, getting on calls with landlords, with occupiers, with leadership uh, to understand what they're thinking, what their fears are, and hearing it straight from them. And that's kind of help, uh, helps me form my view, that plus the data. So, you know, the, the bigger pictures of the things I can't control are all very interesting, whether it's politics or pandemic. Uh, but I think understanding where people are taking their businesses and how they're thinking about uh, what's next? Uh, that that means a lot to me. So I, I do focus more on that. I have to say. I think I'll have to invite you back to another podcast episode to talk about the answers that you're getting on those calls. I'd be happy to do it. All right. Well, this next question is the last quick fire question, and it's very light. It's not industry related. Where is your favorite holiday destination or your favorite place to go on vacation? Well, I'd say my favorite holiday destination is a little place called Polly's Island, South Carolina. It's a barrier island on the coast of South Carolina. And it's actually a place uh, I used to live uh, with my family when, we, no when they were young. Yeah, so that is a, that's a favorite place to go. And I'm headed out there in the next couple of weeks, uh, whether it's warm or not. <laughs> Well, um, ho hopefully, uh, hurricane season is done pretty pretty okay for the for the East Coast uh, mostly this season. So hopefully, it'll stay that way for you. You know, I, that's, yeah. I didn't know that about you. I, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, so not too far uh, from you. Just a couple hours. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and that's um, yeah. My my kids were both born. Uh, so I was born in Charleston, and, and my daughter in uh, Myrtle Beach, actually. So we were down there for a while. Great cities, great cities. And where are you sitting today talking to us? I am sitting in Rye, New York, uh, a walk from my house, uh, sometimes a bike ride. But if the weather's the least bit inclement, I drive. Sorry to okay. say. Okay, fair, <laughs> fair enough. Well, you've got, you got your work from anywhere location sorted. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I started with that. <laughs> John, where would you like people to connect with you? LinkedIn's, uh, anywhere else on social media? Yeah, I think if people can reach me on LinkedIn pretty easily, and I am fairly responsive, I do watch that, and I'm interested to learn. Excellent. Well, we've put your um, 
your links to your social media profiles in the show notes of this podcast. So feel free to reach out to John. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you sharing your insights. Caleb, it's always helpful to uh, talk with somebody who really understands an industry and the questions are great and the, uh, the time is well spent. And I hope it's useful to some people. Me too. Me too. And thank you for listening today. Until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at podcastsyndicator.com or Brett at podcastsyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.